This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On November 21st, 1980, 350 million people around the world tuned in to see who shot JR. On the TV show Dallas, after the show left off eight months earlier with one of the most famous cliffhangers in TV history. In this same year, this week's guest won the Missouri Sports Writer of the Year Award. And the connection for this week's guest is he spent the majority of his career in the city of Dallas. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time we just step off the DeLorean. The date is November 21st, 1980. And we're sitting in front of the TV with 350 million other people around the world to find out who shot J.R. Ewing. A spoiler alert, we find out in that episode that it was Kristen Shepard, J.R.'s wife's sister. But what does this TV show have to do anything with the football history dude? Well, it doesn't really directly have anything to do with it, but indirectly it does, because this week's guest spent a long time in Dallas, covering not only the Cowboys, but the entire NFL, working his way into becoming a Hall of Fame voter. This week's guest is Rick Gaslin, and here's his bio from the Talk of Fame Network site. Rick Gaslin has covered the NFL for 47 years and serves as the Hall of Fame Selection Committee plus both the Contributor and Senior Subcommittees. He has covered the Lions, Giants, Chiefs, and Cowboys in his career and in 2004 was awarded the Dick McCann Award for long and distinguished reporting on the NFL. Gaslin was the 1980 Missouri Sports Writer of the Year. And you'll learn much more about Rick and his career in this episode, but to get even more about him and the topics that we cover in the episode, I highly recommend that you head over to the website and take a look. You can get to the website through your podcast player or by heading straight to the website over at sportshistorynetwork.com, the headquarters for sports yesteryear. Also, while you're at it, I ask you please subscribe for free to the show by mashing that little subscribe button your podcast player choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes, well, each and every week. But for now, let's get into the interview with Rick Goslin. And like I said, you start you worked at the Dallas Morning News for a very long time. I saw this article, the Swan Song article. Um, but let's go before the Dallas Morning News. Let's go way back to the beginning of your career and you know, coming fresh out of college and starting off in your sports career. Uh, let's take us back there. How did that go, Rick? Yeah, I was I went to high school in Detroit at a little school called St. Ambrose. And this was a Catholic League power back then. The school only had 360 kids, half of them were girls. But the hook was that uh, during a nine-year period, they won five city titles and four state titles. And the first two coaches went on to win a combined six Super Bowl rings. Tom Boyce, who became personal director of the New York Giants, and George Perlis, who became defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So football was kind of in my blood from, from early on, from high school on. I went to Michigan State. I played high, uh, hockey in high school. I, I had a chance. I, I could have walked on in hockey or gotten into my chosen field, which was writing, sports writing. I figured I better had a, I had a better future as a writer than I did as a hockey player, as an American hockey player, I should say. So I went to work for the student paper uh, my first term. And my, by, by my sophomore year, I was sports editor. My junior year, I won the the inaugural Bill Reed Award is a top student sports writer in the Big Ten. I graduated early. I went nine straight terms, got out in December, and went to work for UPI as a city side reporter uh, out of college. But I was the backup uh, sports guy. Richard Chuck was the, the lead sports writer. And I covered some Lions, covered some Tigers, covered some Pistons, Red Wings, you know, all the sports. They knew I wanted to go into sports full time. So uh, after two years, I transferred to New York City. And I became uh, the NFC uh, correspondent coordinator, I should say. I covered the Giants and coordinated UPI's NFC coverage. The Giants were terrible. Uh, Bill Arnsparger was a coach. He got fired, and they just they, they were terrible. I covered the one year they played in Shea and the first year at the Meadowlands. 
Uh, if you're going to live in New York City, you want to live in Manhattan. And I didn't. I lived in Forest Hills. And you really defeat the purpose. If you're not making enough money to live in Manhattan, you almost shouldn't be in New York. So I transferred to Kansas City. I became the full-time sports editor. I covered everything. I covered Chiefs, Royals, Big 8, NC Kings basketball. Uh, the NCAA quarter there. The National High School Federation was quartered there. Uh, when I covered the Big 8, I'd go on the Big 8 Sky Riders every year. And I covered a, a Saturday football game every fall. And I covered the Chiefs uh, the following day. I also covered the Royals uh, during their two World Series from 80 and 85. Well, when I covered the Big Eight in, uh, in the late 70s and into the 80s, I got to meet um, Jimmy Johnson, who was uh, the new coach at Oklahoma State. His staff, Butch Davis, Tony Wise, uh, Dave Wanstead, and those guys I would later reconnect with uh, when I, I was hired to cover the Cowboys. So when I'm in Kansas City, I was there for 13 years. Covered the Chiefs 13 years. I, I moved to Kansas City Star in 1985 as the primary Chiefs writer. 13 years, I covered one playoff game. Terrible, <laughs> terrible football team, but it was the best thing that could have happened in my career because they were changing coaches every three years and they were bringing in new assistants. So I got to know virtually every assistant coach in the NFL during that 13-year period. So I had a pretty good network of sources. So my last year in, in Kansas City, 1989, the, the uh, Dallas Morning News called up. And I uh, wanted to know if I had an interest. Initially, I told him no. I mean, I was, uh, I was the primary beat guy at Kansas City Chiefs, one newspaper town. And then Tracy Ringlesby, a Hall of Fame baseball writer, one of my best friends, called me and said, look, I work for the Kansas City Star. I work for the Dallas Morning News. You might want to rethink this. So I did. Went for the interview. Took the job. And they, I think one of the reasons they hired me is that I knew Jimmy Johnson and that staff. And I walked into that building in 1990 with as good or better sources than the people that had been on the beat for a year. After two years, they realized that I knew more people around the league than the Cowboys guy did, or than the NFL guy did, so they flipped us. They put uh, Tim Kalashaw on the, on the Cowboys and put me in the NFL. And for the next 20 years, I had the best job in America. I covered whatever game I wanted as long as it wasn't the Cowboys. So I covered the best game of the week. I covered the 49ers and the Bills in the, in the early 90s. I covered the Packers and the Broncos in the, in the late 90s. I covered the Patriots, Colts in that 2000 run. I saw a good football game every week. And then in 2011, uh, the Morning News made me a sports columnist. And then I went back to seeing every Cowboy game. And that's uh, mm-hmm. it takes you through 48 years of NFL coverage. Yeah, that's definitely a lot. And like you said, moving from Kansas City to Dallas, it's uh, I, I lived in Dallas for a while. So there's that feel of the the Cowboys. What's the difference between like the general f- fans at the Chiefs and the Cowboys in their cities. Again, when I covered the, the Chiefs, they were terrible. And they'd go to training camp at William Jewell. And there may be 20 people on the hill watching practice Chiefs at William Jewell. My first camp in, in, in uh, Dallas with the Cowboys was in Austin. And they were drawing 11,000, 12,000 fans a day. They had a souvenir tent, they had freshmen, and it was a circus. Whereas there was really no interest uh, in the Chiefs in training camp. The interest picked up when the season started, and then they started losing and the interest cooled. Cowboys, win or lose, there's always interest. There's a, there's a craving for anything you can write about how the Cowboys or give them any kind of insight. So that's, that's a big difference. The Cowboys, and I've been to all the other cities, the Cowboys are un- unlike any other. I think the, the Steelers and Packers may be close, the Raiders. But the Cowboys, win, lose, or draw, they, everybody cares about the Cowboys. That's why they're, quote-unquote, America's team. <laughs> right. And speaking of America's team and getting into, you know, this is beyond the moniker of America's team, but I saw in your Swan Song article where you said, I got to know Jerry Jones and the triplets before they were Jerry Jones and the triplets. I mean, why did you make that as a comment in your article? Well, because everybody knows th- those, th- those, th- those owners and players as Hall of Fame guys. I went to cover and they're coming off a one in 15 season. They were terrible. They, they were trying to figure out if they could be a good football team and they were friendly and cordial and, and didn't realize what was in their future. So I, I was able to talk to all those guys anytime I wanted. They were always available to me. They're always good to me. And then the bigger they got, you know, the, the, the tougher it was to get interviews with, uh, with them, especially start when, when they started winning Super Bowls. So it was, it was neat to develop relationships with Jones and Aikman and, and Jimmy and all those guys before they won. Because if you try to jump on the bandwagon after they won, you're easily discardable. But, but they knew I was there from the start. I was there from the losing. And, uh, and to this day, I'm, I'm friends with, with most of those people. What was it that 
made the triplets in your mind become the triplets or really the cowboys? And why did they have such a lo- uh, prolonged success? Well, they're all high draft picks for one. Troy Aikman was the first pick of the draft. You know, Emmett Smith was the 17th pick, and he believes he should have been the first or second pick. Michael Irvin was in the top 12. But there was elite talent coming in. I think Aikman fed off Smith. Smith fed off Aikman. Aikman is one of the handful of the most accurate passers in, in NFL history. Uh, they didn't throw that much, but when they did throw, it was a big-time offense with Jay Novacek and, and Michael Irvin, Alvin Harper on the other side. I think um, had the best offensive line of football, one of the one of the great offensive lines in the history of the game, which really helped Emmett, Emmett which really helped Troy. In 92, when they won the whole thing, they were the youngest, fastest, deepest, best team of football. I think that 92 team could have played with just about any team in the history of the game. They were just were great young players just entering their primes. And, and you know, had, had Jimmy stayed, I think they might have won four or five Super Bowls. You know, that's just the sad thing. Jimmy Jimmy left. The, the Eagles couldn't keep both those guys happy in the same building, Jerry and Jimmy. And, and had, had Jimmy stayed and found a way to get along with the owner, I think they might have won four or five, been maybe the greatest dynasty in NFL history. So what we talk about, like the whole Brady's and the and the uh, uh, Bill Belichick's nowadays, you think that would have been back then even more, maybe? That 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 team was built before the salary cap. I, I think what Belichick's done is amazing. You know, keep that team as as consequential as it's been with a continuous you know flow of players on and off the roster. And when the Cowboys were winning those Super Bowls, that was a fairly constant roster. You know they. In 94, you know, free agency arrived and they started taking some hits. But in 92, 93, that was versus the same team. And they were, again, just entering their primes. Um, you know, when, when Jimmy left, they, they went to the NFC title game in 94, but they had taken some hits. Ken Norton left, went to the 49ers, in fact, and beat them. Uh, and they took some more hits in 1995. They still won it. Uh, again, the triplets were, they, they were just uh, playing on a, on a different level. But the, the salary cap rate took so many hits. By 1996, they were a shell uh, of themselves. And in 95, in fact, was the last time they got to an NFL title, NFC title game. So it's been a long drought. Uh, the, you, the salary cap, you can't have bad drafts. And they had a, about a decade worth of bad drafts. And they've kind of fixed it now, and they're back in the mix. But it was it was a rough decade after. From about 1998 to about 2007 or eight. It was it was a rough go. Yeah, I mean, you're. I don't really have feel bad for him at all. I mean, I can. You can probably see the cup that's in here. <laughs> you mentioned coming from Detroit, and the fans of the show know I'm a diehard Lions fan. And every time I hear about the whole Cowboys and the offensive line and Emmett Smith, of course, my biasness says, "Yeah, what about Barry Sanders if he would have had that line?" And I mean, what was it like covering? Going back to my biasness, Barry Sanders from an opposition standpoint, even though you grew up in that area. Barry was special. I, I think he's one of the three best running backs in history. Um, you watch, just, just he passes the eye test. I go back, there was a Monday night game, uh, Dallas and Detroit. I think it might have been 94 in Dallas. I think that's the, I think that's the one game Emma Smith, or Barry Sanders, really wanted to show who's the best back in the league. Like they were, he rushed for like 200 yards, and, they, and the Lions beat the Cowboys, a good Cowboy team in overtime. That's the one time I really thought Barry said, you know something? I'm the best back in football, Matt Smith. Yeah, it will. I mean, of course, there's records, then there's the eye test. And speaking of eye test, I saw also that you were considered one of the, I don't know what word you want to use, gurus or the, the NFL draft specialists that everybody will come to. How did that genesis happen? And then what would what would you say was like the most intriguing things you felt throughout your NFL draft process? Well, it wasn't the eye test with me because I didn't watch any tape. You know, if I was a sports writer. I wasn't a scout. If I was a scout, I'd watch tape. I'm a sports writer. What happened was during the time I was the NFL writer for the morning news, I went to the different uh, different teams, different games, different stadiums each week and got to know everybody, got to know the GMs, head coaches, players, assistant coaches on other teams. And then um, when Dave Smith made me the sports, uh, the NFL writer in 1992, he said, look, I want you to grade drafts. And I said, well, if I'm going to grade drafts, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I started calling around to personnel people, people that actually watch tape and started getting opinions. Uh, on players, and I started putting together my own draft board based on the opinions of the of the talent evaluators. And it got to, over the years. I, I had a list of 130 people I, I was talking from different teams. I talked to everybody 
Uh, I talked to people in every building. And, and a lot of people thought I was the consensus draft board. I, I was the one guy that talked to everybody. And they looked at my top part of board and they looked at my mocks because they figured that, that's pretty accurate because he's getting that. that This isn't his opinion. This is the opinions of NFL people. So I got to a point where, where NFL people wanted to talk to me. I would get calls the night before the draft from head coaches and GMs wanting to know my mock draft, who was going where. I got calls. I got, I got calls from teams on the clock uh, asking uh, if, if they missed something on a player. Uh, before they took them. My, my boards, I would go, when I talked to head coaches or GMs, I would take about an hour and a half to go through the board. i go to the top 15 players at each position, and it was an extensive conversation. And you do that with 100 people over the course of three months. You get, you get a pretty good, pretty accurate draft board. And I had, um, in 10 years in a row, I had the best top 100 board in the country. And I had three times from 2000, I had the best mock draft. Uh, three times in 11 years, I stopped doing it in two, 2012. So stuff was accurate, and, and the NFL people appreciated uh, my input. And, and I, my deal was if you share with me, I'll share with you. And, you know, you've probably heard the story about the Patriots when they asked Belichick uh, what he saw in Julian Edelman. He credited me for putting him on. And I remember talking to Belichick and said he ran up to see what this kid, this quarterback, Kent State ran. He's not because they hadn't been at the workout. He ran like a 4 3. As he's not going to be a quarterback, he's a pretty good athlete. And then they, uh, Belichick got on him. So it was a good take. They, they gave me a lot of things, and I, sometimes I gave something back. Uh, I, that's actually the first time I did hear that story. That's unique to, like you said, that all these different coaches and GMs, and they're, they're talking to this one centralized guy that isn't even directly involved with any of the team's draft process. I mean, just fall. I mean, like you said, you fall into that because you were just covering one time and then you just grew, grew from there. Or did, was it something that you wanted to do personally? No, I, I mean, I, you, you really expose yourself. You start grading drafts. Like I said, you got to know what you're talking about. So, you know, the first year I probably talked to 50 or 60 people. And then the next year was 60 or 70, next year, 70 or 80. And then over the course of you know, 20 years, you're talking about, Everybody, you're talking to 130 people, you know, people that I, people that I weren't talking to, I wasn't talking to, would call me and want to talk to me. They want to know. They want to go through the board with me. So the stuff was pretty accurate. I didn't, I didn't miss, if I missed, I didn't miss big because by and large, it was a consensus board. It was, it was 32 teams with a consensus. So do you still do any of that today or is that you're kind of beyond that? No, I'm beyond that. I, when they, the, the morning news made me a columnist in 2012, and I said, look, I'll still do the draft if you if you take me down to one column a week. And they said, no, don't worry about the draft. You just do the column. And I said, okay, beware. Don't come to me in a year and say you want me to do the draft. Uh, if I'm going to let go of this network of 130 people, I'm not going to try to resurrect it. So, no. No, it's, it was too much work. Um, you know, if I wasn't going to – I wasn't going to do it for fun. Um because you, you start at six in the morning and you and sometimes you go to two at night. I mean, you don't sleep. And this is for three months leading up to the draft when I was talking to everybody. I'm on their clock. You know, people would call me when they got, when they got there with the draft meetings at one o'clock in the morning. You know, I get uh, some personnel guys before they went in the meetings at 530 in the morning. So you're up, you know, 19, 20 hours a day working the draft board. Uh, so it was time to get a life. So, <laughs> so when it made me a columnist, I opted to, to have a life. Yeah, I saw something else too that um, I don't know how long ago this really was, but the Monday morning quarterback, you had the all-time draft. How long ago did you guys do that? About two years ago, uh, Peter called me up and they were trying to get some you know historian-type people to draft teams over the over the over the decades, and he knew my history. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm a Hall of Fame. They steer people to me for some historical perspective, and he said, "Why don't you mind me involved?" So. Um, I got involved, and it was it was a fun exercise. I tried to draft a two true team uh, with left tackle, right tackle, strong side end, weak side end, strong safety, weak safety. You know, and I didn't want to have just a bunch of names. I wanted to put 22 players out there who could uh, actually line up and play in a game. And I, I thought, you know, I got I had the second pick of the draft. I took Johnny Unitas. I got Dick Butkus. I got Deacon Jones. I got Jack Ham, Bobby Bell. I had great set linebackers. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a very good team. Very happy with my team. 
It looked like there's some other cool things on the website, which I will leave links in the show notes for the fans of the show to go and look at your roster as well as some of the other kind of cool features that they had on there. And I just, was it like a, like we do fantasy football draft nowadays where it's like a boom, boom, boom pick, or was it a long form? It took you a while to create the whole team as a group. No, we, we didn't have Zoom, but we were on a conference call. Oh, okay. And they said, okay, this is your pick. It took a couple hours. So you had, I think they gave us maybe a minute to make the pick or 45 seconds to make the pick. And I had my boards in front of me. It was easy to figure out. Um, it was fun. You know, yeah, Ron Wolf was there. Uh, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, of great uh, football people were on that call. And it was, it was fun looking at how they drafted players and what they placed a premium on. You know, I, I wanted Unitas and I wanted to build a defense. And then I, I built an offense that would be pass oriented. You know, I got, I got, um, Michael Irvin, I got Antonio Gates. I took two running backs who were great pass catchers, LaDainian Tomlinson and Roger Craig. Uh, it was uh, Lance Allworth. It was, it was, I would love to line up with this team, but John United and those weapons in, in that defense, I think I could have beaten anybody with that team. It was fun. It was a fun process. Yeah. It seemed like it would have been a very unique process. Uh, did they have like, certain ground rules or anything like that because you know com- comparing like the players and the eras and things like that no you just be like, if you want to take don hudson in the first round you took don hudson in the first round if you wanted to take uh brett Favre in the first round if you wanted to take aaron Rodgers, or, or if, if patrick mahomes was there you could have taken him it was anybody just build a team off of 100 years of football and that was the, the fun part i took I, I took some guys out of the 50s and the sixties was my favorite all-time decade. I was a kid. I was watching football then. That's I was in love with football in the sixties. So I hit a a, a, a lineup that, uh, that that did favor the nineteen sixties. Well, yeah. I mean, we fall back to what we know growing up or what we love, and sure. just like in fantasy football too, it's like if you're picking between this player or this person, you're going to go with your right. heart. And you kind of alluded to it earlier, being in the Hall of Fame and Hall of Fame voter. How long have you been a voter? It's my twenty fifth year. I did it for a stretch in Kansas City, late 80s, early 90s. Then I got to Dallas and I was already a voter. And then I got back on the board about 2000. Uh, and I've been on the senior committee since 2004. And I was, the, when they could say I was a contributor committee in 2015, they put me on that. So I think I'm the only guy that's on all the, all the voting panels. And a contributor com- committee, today is kind of a, a special day. Who, who did we put on there this year? Well, for the first time ever, they picked a scout. They took Bill Nunn of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And this was really a, a great pick. The history on Bill Nunn is he was a sports editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, which is a, one of the most prominent African-American newspapers back in, in the 50s and 60s. And he was a sports editor. And he would go around and cover college football games of the black colleges. And at the end of the year, he'd put together an HBCU historically um you know, black uh, university and colleges, all America team. And a lot of these players, Deacon Jones is on that team and, and Roosevelt Brown. And, and he had a pretty good history of, of finding good players. So he's picking these teams and still, you know, some guy's a pretty good source. So in 67, they hired him as a part-time scout. He was going to all of the best HBCU games. So he became a part-time scout in 67. And then in 1969, he went full-time. And he's the reason they, they tapped into the HBCU in, in the 1970s decade getting a John Stallworth and a Dwight White and an Ernie Holmes and a Mel Blount and a, and a Donnie Shell. He's a guy that steered the Steelers to those players. And Mel Blount uh, said, hey, if, if, you know, if it wasn't for Bill Nunn, there wouldn't have been a Steelers in the 1970s. So if you're going to put in a first scout, this, this guy was a definite impact player as an evaluator. And he's, the, he's a big part of the reason the Steelers were the team in the 1970s decade. So certainly probably the most deserving candidate on that slate today. You say deserving candidate. Let's take us inside the head of Rick Goslin. And when you are, I don't know, I don't know what, how you say, but yay or nay, when you're voting for, if you're going to put a player into the next level or even into the hall, like what goes in your head to determine this is a hall of fame player or a contributor or coach? Well, we meet, um, I wasn't in the contributing meeting today, but I was there last week for the senior meeting and the coach meeting. And we spend a couple hours discussing every candidate. And we have a couple consultants, uh, Hall of Fame consultants that come in and give us their opinions. And then the consultants leave the room and then we vote. And it's, it's a secret vote. Um, 
usually put it on paper and they add it up and then say, okay, here's the cut. Cut from 12 to 6, 6 to 3, 3 to 2, and then 2 to 1. You get their, the one guy. So you, you figure it out, you know, you go in with a list how you think they should be prioritized. And sometimes your, your top guy gets knocked out. Um, there's only five of us in a room. There's nine in the committee, five of us in a room, and three votes put you in. Uh, this year we picked Drew Pearson, and I thought that was that was a solid pick. I think that was writing a wrong. I thought Pearson should have been in on the Centennial class. He was first team all decade wide receivers receiver. From 1930 through 2010, there have been 17 first team all decade wide receivers. 16 of them are in the hall, and Drew Pearson not only is not in the hall, he'd never been discussed. When we discuss him in February, it'll be the first time he's ever been a finalist. And if you're a first-team all-decade uh, all player, that's generally a rubber stamp. The 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were 57 all-decade players, offense, defense. 56 are in the Hall of Fame. Drew Pearson's the one guy who was not. And you, you, you wonder, what, what did Drew Pearson say or do, or how, how did it happen that he was never a finalist? You know, it's, it's, it was a wrong that needed to be righted. He was a big play uh, clutch receiver. When the NFL Films did a, 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 a film of the or a program of the 75 greatest catches in NFL history in 1994 to honor the 75th anniversary of the, of the game, Drew Pearson had three of them. He had the Hail Mary at 83 yard against the Rams, and he had that 50 yarder against the Redskins on Thanksgiving. And this guy made big plays. He went across the middle. And they say, well, you know, look at his numbers. His numbers don't compare with Randy Moss or Chris Carter. You know, he had fewer than 500 career catches. But understand, he led the NFC in receiving in 1976 with 58 catches. 50 catches back then was a great season. Now it's 100 catches, a great season. But back then, during that era, he was a dominant receiver with quality to go with the quantity of catches. So I thought that was that was overdue. Tom Flores, a lot of people thought he would go in in the Centennial Committee. He'd been a finalist uh, in, in years past uh, in the hall in, in the regular process. And it, it's probably unfinished business there, too. You know, he's one of the handful of coaches that won two Super Bowls that wasn't in. And, uh, again, it's probably unfinished business as well. When I talk about the eye test, well, the first thing I look at for a receiver is average yards per catch. What did you do after you caught the ball? The next thing I look at is touchdowns. You know, a lot of guys catch a million balls and average 11 yards a catch and don't get in the end zone. I want to know, what did you do after the catch? It, it, you know, he benefited playing with Roger Staubach. Staubach put the ball in position where he couldn't make plays after the catch. But this guy, he made plays. He made long touchdowns. He did things after the catch. The, the, the reception didn't end the play. He did something with the ball. And that's when I talk about quality. That's what I mean. You know, he, he had, for his time, quantity. But the quality screamed out. So if you were to have to say, it's kind of you know one thing that I've heard, too, is like, you know, you'd measure on Super Bowl rings, championships. If a player is not on a championship team, they're on a horrible team the whole time, but they're still head and shoulders above how much of a factor does that even weigh in individual performance versus, say, team performance? Well, over 60% of everybody in Canton won, won a championship. I mean, if you, if you won a title, you have a distinct advantage uh, in, in the room. If you played offense and won a title, you have a bigger advantage. Defensive players have a tougher time in. <clears throat> I don't think it's quite 2-1 anymore, offense and defense, but it's tougher for defensive players to get in. If you're a defensive player that didn't win a championship – a guy like Randy Gratishar, you 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 stand on the doorstep for years and years and years. Um, if you're an offensive lineman that didn't win a championship with no stats, you know you're on the doorstep. You can't get in. You know the classic case is George Coons. George Coons was an eight-time Pro Bowler. He went to more Pro Bowls in the 1970 decade than the four first team, four All-Decade tackles. And yet George Coons has never been discussed. And he was an elite player at Notre Dame, second pick of the draft. He went to the Pro Bowl as a rookie, uh, suffered knee injury his second year. After nine games, didn't make the Pro Bowl, comes back, goes to seven straight Pro Bowls. He's traded by the Falcons to the Colts for the right to take Steve Bartkowski with the first overall pick. He's captain of the, of the Falcons in his second season, captain of the Colts in his first season. First year in the AFC, he's captain of the AFC Pro Bowl team. He plays 11 seasons, 
Um, three of them has, have injuries, but every time he was healthy, he went to eight Pro Bowls. And here's a guy who's never been discussed because one, he didn't he didn't win a championship. Two, he had no stats. And I, the process is, is flawed from that context. You know, there's got to be a better way of judging players that didn't win championships. And and that's I'm not sure how you go about doing it. But now I've I've tried to make an effort to to resurrect guys that uh, good players, great players, Hall of Fame worthy players that have been forgotten because of lack of championships. And um, but we've got a number of them in. Yeah, and that's something that you have on your website, Talk of Fame. Uh, state your case, for for instance. Can you explain to me what state your case is and why you started it? Yeah, when we, when we started our, our Talk of Fame network, we had a radio show. We had a national radio show, and we had that up and running for five years. And a lot of the things we did on the website, we carried over to the radio, and radio we carried over to the website. But when we first started, we were going to be a Hall of Fame-themed website. We said, let's, let's analyze players not in the Hall of Fame, and, and state their case. Why these people deserve to be discussed? Why does these people deserve to be considered? We're not saying they're all Hall of Famers, but we're saying they had careers that deserved discussion. We've done, uh, this week, we did our 302nd State Your Case. There have been about, I think, 30 to 35 of them have since been enshrined. But there are a lot of guys that deserve discussion and never will get it. If nothing else, they got the discussion uh, in the story, in the state your case, and they're they're they're, they're read, they're they're really widely read, uh, and we get a lot of feedback on them. And you wonder why? Why aren't guys in the Hall of Fame? You know, I did one on the guy who founded the NFL, Ralph Hay. He's the guy who had the Canton Auto Dealership, and he owned the Canton Bulldogs, and he won three titles, but he wasn't making any money. No one was. So he called these the different teams from different leagues in the Midwest and said. Come meet me at my dealership. And he said, look, we're, we're better off together than we are separately. Why don't we band together and become a, a league? And that became the NFL. And Ralph Hay has never been discussed as a Hall of Fame finalist. Without Ralph Hay, the Hall of Fame's not in Canton. And who knows when the NFL would have been formed had it not been Ralph Hay. And they wanted Hay to be commissioner. And he said, no, you know, you need we need more of a high-profile guy. So he recommended Jim Thorpe, and Jim Thorpe was a commissioner. Uh, Ralph Hayes should be an Hall of Fame. I, I, I think to, to have all, we, I think we put up 12 contributors. I'm not sure there are 12 contributors more worthy than the guy who founded the league. So I would, I would hope that in the next three years, Ralph Hay gets a hearing. Well, in a little bit less than a month, we have the 100th birthday. So I wonder if that'll spark some more interest in everything as far as the name going out there. I had not myself heard of the name until... I started my own show and then I, probably the third maybe episode was Ralph Hay episode, something like that. It was Walter Camp. Uh, geez, I can't remember how it goes now. <laughs> it's been no, two and a half Red years Grange, ago. Thorpe, one, of the, one of those guys. I know I had Red Grange in there, obviously, but you know, it was like Walter Camp and then it might've even been Walter Camp, then Ralph Hay, or maybe the founding. And of course I talked about Ralph Hay, but yeah, he was in the top two or three episodes that I had. And those were solo episodes back in the day. Um, you're pretty passionate about various state your cases, but if I told you right now, I boom, here's the golden ticket. You can only pick one of your state, your cases. What player contributor coach would you boom you're you're inducted in the hall of fame right now well if i had to take a tribute it would be ralph hay the guy founded the league to take care of some unfinished business player wise uh in the senior committee i do think that george coons is a guy that deserves a longer look i think uh, we really need to put in a cincinnati bengal we've discussed the two kens ken anderson ken riley now that we've been um the senior committee has been around for 50 years and we've picked 70 candidates and we have never picked a Colt, a Charger, a Bengo, or a Falcon. And we've had seven or eight players picked for some teams. The Cowboys have had four since 2004. The, the Raiders have had four since 2004. And we haven't picked a Bengal. This is a team that went to two Super Bowls. This is a team that's been shortchanged. Um, you know, Tommy Nobis, he, he'd be a guy that, uh, that, that I'd like to see come out. Uh, Randy Gratishar, again, a defensive player, didn't win a championship. Uh, again, George Coons, Colts, no player. The two, the two Kens, Riley Randerson. 
I, I would really hope that we bring out one of the two Kens next year. We need to bring out a Bengal. There's two very worthy Bengals. The, the Ken Rowley thing is, it boggles my mind. 65 career interceptions, second among peer corners. And he's never been discussed. He's still, he's fifth all time, tied with Charles Woodson. And Charles Woodson's probably going to be a first ballot guy come February. And we've never discussed Ken Riley. The, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is not supposed to be a reputation. It's supposed to be about production. He's the second most productive cornerback in the history of the game, and he's never been a finalist. He led the AFC in interceptions three times. He intercepted nine passes in his final season at 36 years of age and didn't make the Pro Bowl. I mean, how do you, how do you explain it? You know, the other guy across the way, Lamar Parrish, his other his teammate, he was gone, but he was also a punt returner. You know, back in the day, they didn't pick specific kick and punt returns. So Lamar had that the punt return skills. He was getting voted in every year. He went to eight Pro Bowls. Ken Raleigh went to none. You know, just we need to discuss Ken Raleigh. And if not Ken Raleigh, Ken Anderson. Best quarterback not in Ken right now, Ken Anderson. Yeah, but on <laughs> one of my other shows on the network, Pigskin Past, uh, two episodes ago, that was his uh, – it was John Zook and Ken Riley because they had passed away on the same day, and he, you know, in his mind, Joe Zagorski, it was a travesty. And Ken Riley was the one that when I did the more research, I was like, how does the the fifth most interceptions in the league back when they only played 14 games for most of his career, even, and how is he not even considered? It, it baffled my mind as well. Granted, there's a longevity factor there, I guess. So it was spread out, but still, what do you say? 65 interceptions in his career. Right. And the, the problem is no pro bowls. He played it's 15 crazy. years, no Pro Bowls. And like I said, he had he three times he led the AFC in interceptions and never went to the Pro Bowl. How do you intercept nine passes and not go to the Pro Bowl? That just it, it boggles my mind. But that I think the lack of Pro Bowls is what's kept him out, and that's wrong. No, that's this is not about reputation, it's about production. Ken Riley, outside of Night Train Lane, there wasn't a more productive defensive back in the game. He deserves to be discussed, and, and the sooner the better. And you keep bringing up, of course, we talk about senior class and the ones that are eligible for what we call the modern era. At what point are the rules when they break away from not being able to become modern era and they break into that senior class role? You have a 25-year window of eligibility. You're ineligible for the first five years, and essentially you've got 20 years to get in. Uh, and it, I think one of the problems is once a guy gets into the room, they like to say that 94% of the guys that get in the room get in the Hall of Fame. That's because once they get in the room, they generally never leave the room. Uh, Lynn Swan and John Stallworth were there for like 12 consecutive years. That's 24 other players we didn't talk about while we were talking about Swan and Stallworth. You know, Harry Carson, Art Monk, there's some guys that have been in that queue a long time. And we, we talked about them a year after a year. We didn't get to talk about other people. I think we need to cycle more people through that room. I've got a, a, a list of 80 seniors I think need to be discussed. And there are 50-some all-decade players in the senior pool, and most have never been discussed. If you're, one of, if you're picked all-decade, one of the best players of your era, you deserve to be have your career discussed at some point by some Hall of Fame committee. And, and too many great players have slid through the cracks. Now, I was talking to Ron Borges, one of my cohorts at uh, Talk of Fame Network, you look at Cornelius Bennett was a two-time defense player of the year. He's never been discussed. Wilbur Marshall was as good a linebacker as it was in the 1980s. He's never been discussed. How did these guys slide through the cracks? I just, we need to cycle more people. That If I could fix one thing, it'd be cycle more people through the room. If we could discuss 25 instead of 15, I'd be all for that. We need to discuss people and get the right people in the Hall of Fame. And how does that process even work? You said, can we discuss 25 versus 15? Is it who, who promotes up to okay. get these 25 versus 15? Okay, we get uh, we get a preliminary list of candidates, and there are probably 150 names. And then we may, we may add some names. I may have got added a name. Uh, I suggest that they put Bubba Baker in the mix. Um, and then we get this list of the, the, essentially the ballot, and we're supposed to vote that list of 130 down to 15. And there are 48 members on the panel. We all vote. The top 15 vote-getters become the finalists. And then when we talk, we have our meeting the day before the Super Bowl. That's the only 15 we can talk about. We can't talk about Ken Riley. We can't talk about Cornelius Bennett. We can only talk about the 15. 
And then we have a variety of various cuts, 15 to 10, 10 to five, you know, five, you know, that, and then we, it becomes a yes or no up or down on the five. Um, but the, you, you got to make cuts. You got to make cuts. We, we initially cut the, the preliminary list to 25 and then we cut that 25 down to 15. And then we take that 15 into the room uh, the day before the Super Bowl. And the, that's what we discussed. We come up with um, the five quote unquote most deserving candidates. I mean, not to sound, um, uh, what's the bet, but if adding 10 more to the list of already growing, would that really, if there are already five that should be higher, would that really help you think if you add the 10 or is it just to get their name in consideration? It's to discuss more people. Um, what I would like to see is have a second meeting in June. Have us all go to Canton. It's a non-voting meeting. Let's talk about everybody. If you want to talk about 15 players, bring them. Spend two days discussing everybody. You know something? This is the guy who we should be talking about. But we never get together as a group until that one day, you know, meeting in, in February. And I do think we should go through the we, – we should vet the candidates. We should do a better job of deciding who should be discussed and who shouldn't. Um, but that's, that's cost prohibitive. I mean, the hall's not going to pay 48 people a can for – for two days to do this but that's if you want to do it right that's that's what i would do well i'm thinking that in a post-covid era we're kind of proven that people are able to use zoom calls for massive gatherings so that takes that cost prohibitive thing and just throws that out the window so maybe there's some opportunities there yeah we did the zoom calls for the senior the contributor and the coaching uh selections that's the first time we did it i was i was really surprised how smoothly it went the meeting was generally quicker than it had been when we were all together. Uh, yeah, because you can I press. Think, I can press mute on you right now if I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the issue is though. I mean, having forty eight guys in a Zoom call that may be a bit chaotic. I, I could see as many as even twenty. I could deal with, and I think the NFL had Zoom calls. Uh, you know, uh, player calls with you know position uh, groups with with numbers like that. Forty eight would be kind of unwieldy. We couldn't we couldn't detect anybody on the screen. Be little dots. It'd be challenging, but I I think that again, as we are now in this COVID, we as we get past that, and the it's it's becoming more feasible. And like, there's so many people working from home now, where they thought, oh, that's impossible, and then now it's like maybe it's not impossible. So I think that as you continue in technology and. Really more, it's probably the acceptance, maybe, that people could get to it. Because I'm with you. The, that should be discussed more. How could you expect in one meeting to talk about, whittle it down from 150 to 15 and then just talk about it there? I don't think that's that's not doing justice to the people that still could be deserved to get in there. Yeah, and if, if there was a second meeting, I don't think you'd see this many people falling through the cracks. If they're not getting a hearing in February, they're going to get a hearing in, in June and July. And, and guys, you know, a guy like George Coons who goes to eight Pro Bowls, but there was only a small handful of guys who went to that many Pro Bowls that aren't in the Hall of Fame. A, a guy like George Coons really needs to be discussed. You know, Randy Granishaw went to seven uh, Pro Bowls. You know, he he's had he won a championship, he'd probably already be in. Um, the championships really weigh heavy, and I think if you're a defensive player that didn't win titles or an offensive lineman that didn't win titles, you've got you, you're you're a long shot at best. Especially before they had the sack as the official record for um, yeah. the defensive lineman and everything. Uh, let's go back to 1973, though, on your typewriter. I know you mentioned that. Who's uh, the typewriter? What, you were right about that. <laughs> was not, not what was the difference, you think, as far as being a writer in the 70s versus then growing into your 90s and what they are now? What's the difference between that type of a reporter versus today? There's no talk radio. I mean, you go in the locker room, open locker room, there may be three or four writers, and that was it. You had the whole rock room yourself. You go in the Cowboys locker room now with with all the the, the talk radio and all the national there, they're they're hundred media. You know, back back in the seventies, eighties, even even a, even a bit into the nineties, you can get a one on one with players. Now it's it's virtually impossible. And now with with COVID, I think the the era of the one on one interviews is pretty much over. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna get that kind of time. Uh, I don't know that if I could have done the job the way I did it in today's climate, you know, I got to know assistant coaches in today's game. They don't want you talking to the assistant coaches. They don't want you talking to the players. They want to know what questions you're going to ask. 
And I had, when I was covering the Chiefs, and they were so bad, I, I had open run of the building. And I could go into trainer's room. I could, I used to walk down to head coach's office in the morning, pour myself a cup of coffee from his coffee maker as he's watching tape. And now, you know, you, you have key entry. You can't, you're, you're stuck in that one little press room. There's no, there's no casual contact. I mean, when I was covering the Cowboys, I could walk the halls of Valley Rams. I'd bump into Jimmy or one of the assistant coaches, or even Jerry. You know, you talk, you know, small talk and, you know, ask questions. That that doesn't happen now. You know, the Cowboys now, the, the coaches are in one part of the building and the management, you know, the ownership's in another and the media's in another. And you're, you're just so isolated. You know, I miss the, the one-on-one contact that I had in the 70s and 80s and 90s as I was, you know, building my reputation as a writer. Yeah, I used to live really close to the star down there. So I drove by it every day on the way to work when they're building it. That thing's... uh. Uh, I'll say impressive. <laughs> Maybe that's the word. I don't know. From an outsider's perspective, did you ever go there in, oh, yeah. in there? Or? Yeah, we we taped um, the last couple of years. We taped a TV show over there every uh, every Wednesday during the season. Uh, yeah, I, I always thought that they would move the NFL combine there because, in addition to the practice facility, uh, the, the the Cowboys home base, they've got an indoor field that sees eighteen thousand, which several high schools play at. There is a hotel, an Omni Hotel attached. There's a Baylor Medical Center attached. You could do everything there that you do in Indianapolis in, in a much more compact um, setting. Uh, the only difference is the, the hotels. You wouldn't be able to put everybody in the one hotel. A bit of a contract there. In Indianapolis, you can walk. You can stay at any hotel and walk to the to the dome. But I thought if they were going to move the, the combine out of Indianapolis, Dallas would be the place. Yeah, it's definitely a, a world-class deal. And you mentioned how you don't know how people could do it nowadays. If you were to able to give somebody, like go back to the 1973, you're looking over yourself in the typewriter, over 48 years, what advice would you have given your younger self at that point in time with everything that you know now? Well, it's all about relationships. It's about developing relationships and developing a, a trust with the people you're dealing with, um, having integrity. You know, there's some things you, you, you hear that may be off the record. and you, you keep it off the record. You may benefit with it down the road. But you develop a trust. And I think I've, I developed a trust with the people. And, and the draft was a pretty good indication. And people told me things during the draft that, that you're not going to hear. You hear all positives, all negatives on players. It's because people trust me. You know, they knew I wouldn't burn them. To, the, to this day, no one knew who I was talking to. They all knew I was talking to everybody, but, but they couldn't give me, they couldn't identify a single person. I never exposed who was in my network. Again, it's, it's about the relationships. And, and if you have good relationships and you have their trust, they will tell you things. Assistant coaches taught me the game. You know, when I was covering the Chiefs, they were so bad. I would, uh, I'd sit down. I, I remember sitting down with Frank Gans, who was as good as it got in special teams. And he had a guy named Albert Lewis who was one of the best kick blockers I've ever seen. And 10 o'clock in the morning when they're going through walkthrough, I'm sitting with Frank in his office. He's showing me what, how he's going to block punts that particular week. He was showing me the weakness of the coverage of the, of the blocking scheme for that particular team and how he's going to expose with Albert Lewis. I remember they were playing the Jets in a playoff game. And the, the one playoff game I covered in Kansas City. And Albert Lewis had blocked like seven punts that year. And I was talking to Larry Pasquale, the Jets special teams coach, uh, the, the week of the game. And he said, look, I can't tell you how this game's going to play out, but I guarantee you one thing. Albert Lewis will not block a punt. Albert Lewis blocked the punt, caught it in midair, and scored a touchdown with it. Gans would show me how he was going to do it. Uh, st- still one of the most remarkable games I've ever seen. 1986, Chiefs need to win in Pittsburgh in the season finale to get in the playoffs. They have the worst offense in football, 28th of 28 teams. Their backup quarterback is playing. Bill Kenny's hurt. Todd Blacklitch has got to play. That day, the Chiefs had six yards, excuse me, six first downs and like 120 yards of total offense. They won the game 24-21. They blocked a punt for a touchdown. They blocked a field goal for a touchdown. They returned a kickoff for a touchdown. Nick Lowry had a field goal. All the points were on special teams. No offense. That's when I realized, you know, son, you can win games of special teams. You know, for the last 30, 30 some years, I've, I've ranked the special teams. Frank Gans showed me his formula. And I've taken that and I've added various categories. Now, 
I've got the, the, the gold standard ranking for, uh, for, for special teams. Uh, I rank all 32 teams each year. Uh, and it's amazing how often the Super Bowl champion winds up in the top 10 somewhere. You know, I did a composite. Last 10 years, the number one special teams in the league was New England. Over the last 20 years, composite. The number one special teams was New England. There's a reason they win championships. There's no – he's got Tom Brady. He's, he's an expert in defense, but he doesn't leave any stone unturned on special teams. So, again, Gans gave me an appreciation because I was able to sit with Frank Gans and watch him. He taught me special teams. And that's what you're not going to find today. It's, it's very difficult to have access to assistant coaches. You're not going to get that sit down for an hour and let's, let's what tape together uh, type relationship that I have with Frank. Yeah, that's one of those moments that you just can't really replicate. And speaking of moments that you can't really replicate, something I always ask the listeners of the show or the guests of the show, I'm going to give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean. You can go back in time, <laughs> any point in NFL history. You can't change the outcome. You can talk to one person or you can watch one game. You can ask them a question, where you going and who you asking. Well, I, I, I live that experience. Uh, when I was covering the NFL the first year, the Ravens, we're in Baltimore. I was covering a game, and they take you down on the field with about two minutes to go, to you know, for, for the end of the game. So I'm, I'm on the field, and I'm standing next to John Unitas as the Ravens are running a two-minute drill. Talking to John Unitas, who was the king of the two-minute drill. I mean, in football, you can't be that. You can't be that. I, I would have liked to have talked to Paul Brown. Uh, I never had a one wall with Paul Brown. I've I've had one on ones with Shula and Belichick and, and a lot of the great coaches. Um, I would have loved to have talked to Paul Brown. I think he's the he he is the reason pro football got to where it was. The weight training and the playbook and and the, the, the franchise quarterback deal with Otto Graham. I would like to talk to him. I would like to have a more in depth with conversation with John Unitas. You know what he saw, and I still think he's the best quarterback to ever play the game. He calls his own plays. He beat you mentally. He beat you physically. He was, in my mind, he was the best. And if you put John Unitas in today's game, he may never throw an incomplete pass. He was that good. If you take these guys, the, the Breeze, the Rodgers, and Brady's, and put them back in the 1960s when you could hit the quarterback and you could, you could break his nose, you, know, you wouldn't be seeing these 5,000-yard passing seasons from those guys. It's it's all about the era. But um, – John Unitas and Paul Brown be the two guys that I would love to talk to. There you go. Paul Brown, Johnny Unitas. You could probably do worse for legendary men of the gridiron if you had to go back and talk to somebody, huh? I hope you enjoyed this insider's look into a 47-year career with Rick Goslin, covering the NFL from many different angles. You can learn more about Rick and the topics that we covered by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com. And to give you a little bit of a teaser, bomb. we talked about the travesty of Ken Riley not being in the Hall of Fame. Next week, we continue this discussion with Ken Riley's son, Ken Riley II. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.